Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You're listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. My name is Joanna Defo, a research assistant at the center, and I'm in the studio today with Professor Gus Speth to discuss his recent book, America the Possible, Manifesto for a New Economy. Professor Speth was a founder of the Natural Resources Defense Council and the World Resources Institute, and he served as the administrator of the United Nations Development Program from 1993 to 1999. Time Magazine has called him the ultimate insider, but to many of us at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, Professor Speth is known as a friend and a mentor from his time serving as dean. His previous publications include Red Sky at Morning, Global Environmental Governance, and Bridge at the Edge of the World. The paperback for America the Possible is coming out on paperback shortly, so you can all look out for that in bookstores near you. Welcome to the show, Professor Speth. Good morning, Joanna. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Good. So, Professor Speth, I'm curious to know what motivated you to write America the Possible, and how is it different from Bridge at the Edge of the World? Well, it's motivation. Uh, I, I'm afraid our country is uh, in big trouble. Uh, we've slid to the bottom uh, on 30, uh, 30 indicators of well-being in comparison with uh, of the 20 advanced democracies. Uh, we're at the bottom now uh, of a long list of, of things where we should be uh, at least equal to uh, the other advanced democracies. So I'm was motivated by a powerful uh, sense that uh, we're headed in the wrong direction. I've got uh, six uh, lovely grandchildren that uh, we're, we're, and we're headed straight for a world that I don't want for them at all. Uh, so the book is really... Uh, an effort to describe that problem, to uh, present a, a very telling, I think, picture of the world that we could build instead, and uh, thirdly, to uh, plot a course. Uh, uh, and it has to be, of course, a very deep change, because these problems have developed over decades, and they're now very serious, and we're, unless we're prepared for a really fundamental change, systemic change, uh, in our political economy, we are not going to reverse these trends. Um, so that was the motivation of the book, and it also explains uh, why it's different from uh, the bridge at the edge of the world. It's certainly much broader than than uh, the bridge, which was basically a, an environmental story, um, and uh, it it's has, as I said, this fiction of, of, uh, of America the possible and, and a lot more on the prescriptions uh, about what we need to do in a more comprehensive uh, assessment of that uh, than the bridge did. Right. And so if Bridge at the Edge of the World is more of a diagnostic piece and if America the possible is perhaps more of a prescriptive one, then what comes next? Can we look forward to a trilogy? Uh, I, I, I have uh, declared my series of books with the Yale Press to be a trilogy because uh, the first one was uh, Red Sky at Morning, and I declared it a trilogy uh, precisely because I didn't, I was, didn't want to put myself in a position of uh, writing another one. Um, so those three are, 
So my uh, so a swan song, I guess, uh, and uh, I really said what I wanted to say it, over a period of a decade in uh, producing these uh, these three books. And are you carrying on with your writing projects still, or are you moving your focus to other projects and activities? Well, I'm very heavily involved now in in building what we hope will be a, a, a new economy movement. Uh, you notice the subtitle of the book is Manifesto for a New Economy, and uh, we have organized a, an uh, organization called the New Economics Institute, and uh, coming out of that, we are forming a new economy coalition, because I actually think there's great strength in the many areas uh, of uh, where people are working towards the new economy, but the, the, the people are very fractured, very siloed. Uh, some people work on consumerism issues. Some people work on corporations. Others are trying to look beyond our growth fetish. Others are thinking about uh, how do we uh, get a, uh, a change in, in, in values and consciousness. Um, how do we? What do we need to do to make our international posture and our foreign policy and our military policy consistent with uh, with doing the things that we need to do uh, here at home? And on and on, there are people working in all these areas, but what we want to do with this new economy coalition is to bring them together and, and so that they can see each other, so that they can frame a, a common a sense of common identity, a common platform, a more systematic uh, messaging of uh, new economy themes. So one of the things that we'll be doing is this October we'll be having New Economy Week, and uh, the hope is that groups uh, across this whole spectrum of issues uh, will undertake specific activities uh, to try to move this concept of, uh, of a new economy, of an economy that really does give priority to people and place and planet. Uh, and uh, and that certainly doesn't uh, today. Uh, and that requires a deep uh, systemic change in our political economy, and we hope that all the people working towards this goal in their different areas and sectors and causes can come together uh, in October, uh, the week that's launched by uh, Columbus Day, and, uh, and, and, and that will be a big step forward. Professor Speth, when I hear you talking about the scope of the new work that you're doing and the issues that you're working on, it seems quite clear that you're tackling quite global, systemic, and complex issues. And I'm wondering... You know, for any given policy intervention or campaign or project, how can we ever get the kind of feedback necessary to evaluate our success on a global or systemic level? Or to quote from Nate Silver, how can we distinguish a true signal that we're on track from a universe of just noisy data? Well, there's a lot of noisy data out there, and a lot of it's being ignored. Um, and... Um, I think that the way that I'm able to look at this uh, is to um, think of it as a, a series of, uh, of transitions uh, that are needed. And I think we could develop, uh, in terms of measurement of whether we're getting there, we could, get, we could develop uh, metrics uh, with, for each of these uh, uh, transitions. Uh, how close are we beginning to shed uh, our growth fetish? look to a post-growth economy? Uh, are we moving from shareholder primacy to stakeholder primacy uh, in our corporate sector? Uh, are we focusing more on Main Street 
Main Street Finance and Banking rather than Wall Street. Uh, social indicators. Um, one key indicator that we need to develop is uh, is to further refine and make and, and spread the use of the genuine progress indicator, uh, dethroning uh, GDP as much as uh, as much as possible. Uh, so I think across this whole spectrum of issues, uh, uh, we could uh, develop metrics to to measure our performance. Uh, we need a dashboard. Uh, we need a dashboard that can has a, a index of social well-being, uh, index of psychological well-being, uh, an index of environmental well-being, index of political well-being, the health of our democracy. And then we need this genuine progress indicator to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with GDP, a monetized measure of sustainable economic welfare that we can compare with GDP. And, of course, when those when that the genuine progress indicator was done for the United States for several decades. What it shows is that we aren't getting better off. Uh, it was flatlined throughout a period of several decades while GDP per capita went on up, uh, giving us very bad signals. So I think it's possible to develop metrics uh, and, and to gauge our progress, uh, but it has to be done in a systematic way. In America the Possible, you identify four guideposts that can usher the transition to a healthier political economy. And your fourth guidepost calls for a heightened consciousness and for some a more expansive sense of identity. Can you tell us how this guidepost fits with the larger manifesto? Well, I don't think we'll, I don't think we'll get uh, very far uh, with our current uh, metrics. Uh, with our current consciousness, uh, the values that are uh, that are that we hold uh, in highest priority today are, are very anthropocentric, uh, very materialistic, uh, very individualistic, um, and um, very contempo-centric. Uh, we need new values uh, and, and new consciousness, and and it, it's not something that we have to simply hope for or wait on. Uh, we know a lot of the things that can change values, that can change consciousness. Uh, and, um, and I think we, um, including education, uh, notably, uh, but also uh, uh, social marketing, uh, um, a crisis, if, if it's, uh, we will undoubtedly have more of, is it can be a moment for learning. Uh, if it's severe enough, it can delegitimize this current system of political economy that we have. And, uh, and uh, the world's religions, uh, building the future into the present in our localities around the country. So seeing is believing. When people see that a better world is indeed possible and it's being born in localities around the country, well, that's very powerful. So I think there are things that we can do uh, that would, um, over time, uh, lead to a different uh, consciousness, one that is more resonant with the natural world, one that is more committed to social solidarity and to the future well-being of, of our children and grandchildren. As someone who's built a strong career in environmental law, it was surprising for me that environmental litigation played such a small role in your new book. Why is that? Well, it's played a small role in all three of my books, I would say, uh, for the simple reason that um, while we need to continue uh, to bring legal actions uh, and, uh, and to 
enforce the uh, use the courts to enforce the, the environmental laws that we have on the books, um, it, it's not going to win the battle. We've been doing that now for 40 years, and with some success for 40 years. And thank goodness, uh, I shudder to think what the world would be like without our uh, existing environmental organizations and, and the litigation that they and others uh, have brought. I shudder to think. But you know, it's, we're swimming upstream against a current that's too powerful, and we're winning victories and losing the planet. And if we really want to change things, we've got to quit, you know, working exclusively within the system, step outside of the system and challenge it. And so that's what, you know, all of my books are really about. Uh, there are a lot of good books on environmental law and environmental litigation, uh, and God bless them. I want to ask you about some of the more recent developments in U.S. climate policy um, that might seem to challenge, at least on the surface, your characterization of U.S. climate politics. When President Obama gestured toward a new era of agency rulemaking on climate change while unveiling his climate action plan during a rather forceful speech this June, I'm curious to know how you interpret these more recent developments. Well, myself and everybody I know who's been waiting on the administration to act on climate uh, is, uh, you know, was delighted that, that he took those steps, that he made those statements and those commitments. Uh, we'll see how honorable he is about fulfilling them uh, early here, with uh, perhaps soon on his decision on the Keystone XL pipeline. Uh, but you know, let's let's be frank. Uh, truth is that it's a very modest plan compared with what is needed. It is nowhere near what we ought to be doing uh, on the climate issue. And um, I think we have to walk on two legs. Uh, you know, we have to do the reformist incremental things that we can get done now and hopefully uh, go beyond Obama's plan and get some tough legislation out of the Congress on climate one day. Um, but uh, we have to recognize that that's going to be only, uh, you know, one leg walking. We, uh, we also need to be pursuing these deeper changes, uh, and in particular, getting beyond our, our growth fetish, because as long as we are prioritizing GDP growth, uh, as long as it's triumphant, as long as it's the, the imperative that trumps everything else, uh, and as long as any climate policies or other policies have to um, uh, have to know, help the economy at the same time they save the planet, well, we're not going to get there. Uh, this is a, you know, we, we've got to be reducing the, uh, the, the greenhouse gas intensity of production, the amount of greenhouse gases per unit of, of, of economic output by, you know, something like 9% a year uh, in a growing economy. Uh, it's more like 6% a year and therefore a lot more plausible uh, in a steady-state economy or a post-growth economy. So there are a lot of things we need to do to address the problems in the book. Uh, yeah, they could slow economic growth, but they make us better off, and on balance, the quality of life and the well-being of our society would be improved. As long as all those things are held hostage to our growth fetish, they're not going to happen. So we need to grow up, so to speak, uh, and, and transcend this... Uh, infatuation with growth. Moreover, it doesn't produce. What's happened? We've had about a 130% increase in GDP in the United States in the last few decades, uh, I think since 1980. 
Um, and what did we get since 1980? Poverty went to an all-time high. Social equality uh, increased dramatically. Uh, a well-being of uh, psychological well-being, life satisfaction flatlined. Wages flatlined. Uh, environment tanked. I mean, these are uh, growth doesn't produce. We need to start trying to grow the things that really matter, not GDP. A classmate of mine actually wanted me to ask you a question about the growth imperative, and she was wondering what the sort of practical steps will look like for transitioning towards a healthier economic state. Well, that's what the book is all about, really. What are the policies that we need to uh, to get beyond, uh, uh, you know, to achieve social and environmental objectives? Uh, and uh, rather than simply thinking that somehow the growth is going to produce the jobs that we need, the growth is going to solve all the problems. It isn't. It hasn't for decades now. Yeah. Uh, and um, so there, but there are a host of things that we could be doing. Uh, we could be stimulating uh, particular sectors that, that do need to grow. Uh, we could be uh, protecting uh, part-time work and creating uh, uh, part-time jobs. We could be uh, supporting uh, the unionization again, and uh, you know, real parallel between the decline of labor unions in the United States and the flatlining of wages and the decline of social conditions and the loss of our middle class. Um, so there's a, you know, the book is full of policies that are, I think, urgently needed uh, in order to deal with these issues, and uh, uh, they would decisively move us beyond our fallacious idea that, uh, you know, that we're going to solve these problems by ramping up GDP. America the Possible has a sort of rich range of policy options and suggested pathways for a more functional democracy, including campaign and electoral finance reform. And I was wondering how we can begin to rank order these objectives, or do we address them all at once? Well, one of my disappointments is that after the last uh, election, that uh, there wasn't a, um, a movement, really, uh, to, uh, of people across the whole political spectrum to come together and try to implement a series of pro-democracy reforms. They're urgently uh, needed. Uh, we, need a, we need independent uh, district, congressional districting. Now they are, I think we're down to, like, 30 competitive in de- in de- uh, congressional districts in the country. Uh, this leads to one of the factors behind the polarization uh, in the Congress. Uh, but if you ask me to you know, not go down my whole list, but to pick out one, I would say it, it's money. Uh, it, it's, and we, we need fair election laws with public and small donor financing. And, uh, and we need... Uh, something that which is in a new proposal which is being discussed. Uh, it's called the American Anti-Corruption Act. That can be uh, Googled. And, um, and what this does is that it says basically that if you, as a member of Congress, uh, are on a committee which has responsibility for a particular sector, that is to say, let's say you're on the Finance Committee and you have responsibility for the banks, uh, you cannot take money uh, from those sectors. Uh, it would be a new ethical rule. Uh, you would think it would be an ethical rule now, right? Um, because, for example, judges can't take contributions from litigants. 
uh, before them. Uh, and so it's a, um, this is, a, I think, a wonderful new approach, uh, entirely constitutional. It, it just would be an ethical uh, rule in the, in the Congress. Uh, and that would have a very salutary effect. Um, if we can you know, break the power of big money and uh, big finance uh, and, and corporations uh, need a, you know, to move over time towards the separation of corporation and state, uh, and so I was pleased to see this effort in the country to move to amend, uh, to amend the Constitution, to recognize that corporations aren't people, uh, and that money is not speech. Uh, so that there's a lot that we can do, and I'm, I'm hoping that we will, you know, securing the vote right now is a priority because, uh, you know, we see these you know, voter restriction, uh, voter suppression efforts uh, underway in, in so many Republican-dominated states. Uh, so I was glad to see the Attorney General beginning to litigate some of these, and um, with no help from our Supreme Court, I might say. Shifting gears from the local to the global level, I'm curious more generally to understand how you evaluate the multilateral climate process under the UNFCCC. Do you see the shift towards yet another treaty as an opportunity with promise? Well, you know, I wrote this. I wrote the book. Uh, uh, the um, Red Sky Morning about this whole uh, issue of the multilateral environmental agreements. Uh, the sad truth is that uh, they're not working. Only one of the treaties has produced the significant um, uh, effects, uh, in my view, and that's the treaty to protect the ozone layer. Uh, the other ones are basically toothless right now. Uh, sure, we need an international agreement. Uh, we need probably multiple international agreements. Uh, we need tough ones with real teeth and real enforcement and opportunities for citizen participation. So, you know, my book, Red Sky at Morning, was all about the new way we ought to be trying to get to, to tough treaties and not toothless treaties. Uh, and, but the fact is that the world is not going to do very much on climate change, I'm afraid, while the U.S. Uh, is dragging its feet. Uh, and it's certainly dragging our feet now. Indeed, as uh, Canadian, it's also interesting to see that there's not just the United States alone um, that's serving as laggards on the international climate process. Well, you know, Canada used to be a, a reliable global citizen, uh, but it's turned into a rogue uh, petrostate uh, un under the uh, Harper government. And, um, you know, the only real... New York Times has pointed out that the real the, the, the argument is being most seriously considered for approving the Keystone XL pipeline, the tar sands pipeline, uh, is uh, to because uh, to to keep our uh, Canadian neighbors happy. And uh, this is a government that we shouldn't really be trying to keep happy in ways like that. Professor Speth, I want to ask you a closing question that I've seen dozens of young people ask you. And this was also requested by a classmate of mine at the forestry school. And so I'm also curious to know what you think, that with so many pressing environmental concerns, where would you suggest young people focus their energies? Well, if I were 
uh, young person today, I think I would uh, uh, try to find uh, a spot in this uh, frame of uh, the new economy, of building the new economy that, that could make uh, uh, the most uh, sense. Uh, and, you know, a productive way to get involved in some aspect of building the new economy uh, rather than in traditional uh, environmental environmentalism. Um, I think we've got to step outside the bounds of the so-called environment that we environmental movement that we've created and and think in in, in deeper terms of change. Uh, you know ask yourself this, uh, what is an environmental issue? Uh, what if the uh, the traditional answer is, oh, air pollution, water pollution, climate change, uh, water supply. These are, uh, you know, the way we define the environment by and large. But uh, what if an environmental issue is really uh, big factors that determine environmental outcomes, the big factors that determine the quality of the environment, the, the ability to uh, effectively protect and restore the environment? Well, immediately you see that, you know, that's our political system. Uh, and, and the need for political reform uh, that's fundamental. Uh, the need for social justice is you know, largely off-limits to environmental groups. The, uh, the strength of, uh, of our programs for, for helping each other. Uh, these are environmental issues, in my view. Uh, how can you expect to get the prices right when half the country is, uh, is, is barely just getting by? Um, and, you know, half the if the uh, wages in the country, uh, annual wages are, are $35,000 or less, um, you know, try raising a family on that. Not going to be terribly inclined to see uh, full cost pricing of gasoline. Uh, so um, I, I think, and, you know, in particular, I, I think we need what I, you know, just literally would call, uh, uh, you know, environmentalists for political reform environmentalists for real democracy, uh, because we need to straighten out our systems of democracy. And then the third thing I would say is, you know, focus locally right now, because Washington is a basket case, and there's a lot that can be done locally uh, to build um, the future uh, at the local level, to bring the future into the present uh, in our localities. And a lot of that's going on around the country with new types of corporations, more rooted, uh, with uh, new... Uh, areas of, of, of rapid change, like our, our food supply and going local uh, with food, uh, local investment, local banking, uh, local currencies. Uh, this is the exciting new area where progress is immediately possible, I think. Professor Speth, I'd like to thank you for your luminous contributions to the U.S. environmental movement. And it's been a pleasure to speak with you today, and we're so grateful to you for joining us. Well, thank you, uh, Joanna. It's good to talk with you, and uh, I really uh, appreciate the, uh, the school and the university and all my friends there. Well, please come back anytime. Thank you. Thank you.